Well, hello and welcome to Round the Table live with Chris Concern. Um, I'm Tim Dieppe and today we are talking about abortion as our topic and we're particularly focusing on a abortionist doctor who has been trying to um, stop lives of babies being saved um, through uh, trying to uh, reverse the um, treatment of the abortion pill. Uh, we'll get into the details of that and we'll also discuss what's been happening in the House of Lords this week as they've discussed um, abortion buffer zones. But I'm delighted today to be welcomed by, or to be able to welcome, Dr. Dermot Kearney, who is a life-saving doctor who has saved lives of, of many babies, which we'll get into in a minute. Welcome, uh, Dermot. Really nice to have you with us. Um, you, and also by um, Tim Lewis, who is a, a theologian who is, uh, now works for Brefos, pro-life organisation, um, and uh, speaks out on this issue. Um, Dermot, just um, tell us a bit more about um, your own experience in this. You, you know, we, we, we started seeing people posting out these abortion pills during the lockdown, and, um, and quite a lot of women took the first pill and immediately regretted it and found, reached out for help and found you. And what, what happened next? Yeah, so if, a, if a, a mother who's pregnant has taken the first abortion pill, like she's decided at some stage that she's either by, by voluntarily or by some form of coercion from others, that she's going to go ahead with a medical abortion or drug-induced abortion. It's a, a two-stage two process. They take the first drug called mifepristone, and then they're meant one or two days later to take the second drug, misoprostol, to complete the, the, the abortion. Yeah. But many, many girls, many young mothers, um, after they've taken the first pill, regret the decision, sometimes immediately, sometimes a number of hours later. And they don't, they decide not to go ahead with the abortion. They want to try and do something to save their, their babies. And we know that uh, as long as they don't take the second pill, that, that that immediately increases the chance of some survival. Because if they take, they take both pills, there's less than 2% chance that the baby will survive, um, depending on the stage of gestation. But generally yeah. between 1% and 2%. Yeah. If they take both pills, if they only take the first pill but don't take the second pill, uh, there's a, probably 15 to 20 percent chance, less than 20 percent chance that a baby might still survive. Again, depending on the stage of just without any further treatment. So we, well, we just using a little bit of logic, uh, was found out many years ago in the more 10, 12, 14 years ago, uh, initially in the USA, that if we give progesterone to mm. women in this situation. So they've taken the first pill, which blocks the action of natural progesterone, which is essential to maintain pregnancy. So if right. you can give progesterone quickly, uh, as long as you don't take the second pill, you increase the, the chance of the baby surviving more than 50%. The American experience was more than 65%, actually. Uh, right. But there, there's a greater awareness of it in, in the United States, and there's also less opposition to it. It's um, they, they get the, the progesterone much more quickly than we do in this country. But yeah. in, we found yeah. there's a more than 50% chance the baby will survive if we yeah. can get progesterone yeah. to the mother before heavy bleeding and major cramps start. Uh, she's already yeah. experienced heavy bleeding, which some, some do within the 24, 48 hours, uh, then we're probably too late. But if we can get uh, treatment in quickly, we can more than double the survival rate of, of the baby. Uh, so that's what we had been doing from myself and Dr. Riley, Eileen Riley, from 2020 up until we were um, commanded... Uh, to stop doing so uh, while an investigation into our into All our right, practice. Well, let's let's come back to that. I just want um, Tim to have opportunity to introduce yourself. Tim, tell us about your work 
and Brefos, where you work now, and, and you're doing an interesting PhD projects as well. Sure, thank you, thank you, Tim. I'm delighted to be here uh, this afternoon. Thank you for having me. First of all, yes, I, I work for Brefos in a very much in a part-time capacity. I've known about their work and ministry for a number of years and, and been supportive of them. But since really autumn last year, I, I came onto the team as their church network and theology lead. So, so primarily that's involved in uh, involves speaking in churches, uh, liaising with churches, and also theological colleges, training courses, those kind of institutions. Everything Brefos is about is really um, helping Christians on an individual level and churches, uh, Christian organizations, understand really the reality of abortion, which is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's a euphemism for killing children in the womb and helping Christians uh, advocate for the unborn child, equipping them with the skills they need at all sorts of different levels. So, so that's what I'm involved in with Brefos and doing occasionally writing pieces from, from a sort of theological point of view from seeing what the bible has to say about this uh, and actually the bible has quite a lot to say about uh, pregnancy about the child in the womb about the unborn mm. child and so yeah my phd is really is just seeking to develop a, a, a biblical theology of the unborn child all the way from kind of genesis through to revelation bringing all the different disparate texts together and trying to make something coherent and cohesive out of that so yeah i've been doing that now for about three years uh, part-time again uh, over in a place in, in in ireland um very much enjoying it so so yeah that's uh great. what i'm doing at the moment great very good and if you're watching live um do put your questions and comments in the chat on youtube or facebook and um we can see them and we'll try and respond to them now so dermot you were offering this life-saving treatment remind me how many babies have been saved through this kind of treatment of offering progesterone to reverse the effects of the first abortion pill well in throughout the uk i'm aware of at least 44 Wow. Um, myself, I'm, I've, been, I've been responsible for 22 that have been born alive and well, with another couple well on the way to. Uh, my colleague, Dr. Eileen Riley, had uh, already saved 12 babies uh, alive and well. We know of one, one other consultant obstetrician in the northern part of the country that had, uh, that had given progesterone in this situation when requested to do so by a, a woman who regretted the decision. And yeah. During our period of suspension, I'm, I'm aware of one other doctor that carried on, carried, kept the flag flying, and he has been responsible for at least nine, possibly more. So I'm aware of 44 that have been saved, but there's another between 10, 15, sort of well on the way as well. So we should. Yeah. So, well so you, you got suspended at some point, and complaints were made against you uh, last year to the General Medical Council, the GMC. Uh, tell us about that. What what happened? Who was bringing those complaints against you? Complaints were brought, but by a number. In my in my own case, it was mainly through um, the medical director of Mary Stopes International, MSI, uh, Dr. Jonathan Lord. But also a separate complaint came from the Royal College of Obstetricians. Main, mainly interesting in their complaint, they said they weren't so much concerned about the treatment we were offering. It was more the people involved. They didn't like that uh, there was Christian doctors um, providing this treatment that we could not possibly give non-judgmental advice to women in these crisis situations. Um, and then there was also a, a media campaign by uh, like a pro-abortion media group called Open Democracy. So between the three of them, they were the ones who brought the complaint. And the complaints, in my case, there was 10 main complaints and they, they varied from that we were using an unlicensed medication remotely, uh, that I was acting outside of my area of expertise, that we weren't following the recommended guidelines on, on abortion practice, that we were taking women out of the, the normal NHS practice to provide this this uh, unethical treatment on them, that we were enforcing our Christian beliefs on these vulnerable women. 
and uh, we, we were bribing them to 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 do what we wanted uh, to take them out of the care of the normal uh, uh, GP and uh, hospital system, which uh, none of which were had any um, factual basis to them. And when the investigation was eventually complete, and uh, none of the allegations were upheld, so they, they were all that the case was was dropped by the GMC. And they in in the final statement they said that there was no prospect of obtaining any uh, proof to back up any of the allegations that had been had been made. But it went on. So the initial so a suspension strong, was put on. A strong vindication for you then, Demo, in the end. You know, you had this investigation, lots of allegations being thrown about by various people, um, particularly you know, Jonathan Lord from Murray States, who we'll come back to. Um, and you were fully vindicated in the investigation by the GMC that concluded that there's no evidence to substantiate any of the claims against you and that the treatment that you've been administering, which is progesterone treatment to reverse the effects of the first pill, is a safe treatment and may be beneficial as well. Yeah, the, the GMC can't, uh, they can't make clinical judgment, but their expert witness uh, that, that they hired or employed to to give his opinion on, on, the, on the case, uh, he came out with the statement that, that Actually, the strongest point that he made was that we, what we were doing was in addressing an unmet need. That was the very phrase he used, an unmet need. Right. And the way he was being critical of the, of the of people there before us that should have been providing the service to women who requested, but nobody was prepared to, to do so. So what we were doing was an unmet need. And he came out, he said, while there wasn't a, a lot of evidence in favour of it, certainly there was no evidence to suggest that it was dangerous in any way. And he said that there was some evidence. It wasn't the strongest level of evidence that we like to have, things like randomised controlled trials. But he said there was sure. a, a reasonable amount of evidence that was available on, you know, to the public on PubMed. Uh, so he was happy that uh, we weren't doing anything that you was can't exactly wrong. Do a randomised controlled trial of trying to reverse an abortion, can you? I mean, <laughs> that's not very ethical to do that. It, it, it might have been 15 years ago when nobody knew, but now with the information that we've accumulated over the last you know, 14, 15 years, it, it would be unethical to, to yeah. say to some women, sorry, we, yeah. we put you on a placebo instead of uh, the, the, the drug, the active drug that might help to save your baby. Yeah, yeah. So so now, um, Dermot, now a complaint has been made against this very same uh, director at um, MSI, um, Dr. Jonathan Lord, for misleading the public and misleading a government agency and indeed um, patients as well um, um, about abortion pill reversal treatment. Tell us about what's happened there. Yeah, well, and, and, uh, I'm one of the signatories to, to the letter, but also a number of other doctors who voluntarily came forward because they were concerned about some of the you know, possible behaviour of, of Dr. Lord in, in this, in this, on this issue. And some of right. the... Uh, dishonesty or the, the misleading information that he's still trying to, him and his organisation are still trying to convince the public because they're still making efforts to make sure that that uh, nobody takes abortion pill reversal seriously or to try and uh, discredit it. Um, so the efforts are still being made and the information that they're putting out there is not is not true. So we felt that we had to do something to, to counteract this. There's dishonesty in the medical profession it is considered very seriously. Like I, I've looked at other cases that the GMC have been involved with and honesty is the one that they consider to be one of the most serious. Uh, and when you're trying to, uh, when you're trying to influence you know, public policy and uh, the, the behavior of you know, regulatory bodies um, by giving wrong information, misleading information that you know to be wrong and uh, know to be incorrect, uh, that, that, should, that has to be taken seriously. 
So among yeah. the issues, for example, one that, that caused me most concern was that he he and his organisation, when in their application to NICE, because NICE brought out guidelines in November 21. Just explain, on the use of uh, listeners won't know what NICE is, Let's Just explain who NICE is. Well, it's a well-respected body called the, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence and of Care and yep. Clinical Excellence, yep. which is very powerful. And you know, if NICE approve of something, then it's it's very difficult for any health board or health authority to, to say, no, we can't do that, we won't do that, if NICE give their approval to it. So it carries a lot of weight and decisions made by NICE. So they approve drugs and, and medicines and, and regulate to, to a degree how they're used and what they can be used for. The, the treatments and management strategies. So they, they, they're, they're, very, they're a very influential body. And yeah. uh, they investigated um, the issue of using progesterone for preventing miscarriage. Because there right. had been some controversy. Uh, some doctors were given progesterone to prevent miscarriage, and sometimes it's successful, sometimes it's not. And a number of studies had suggested that what, there was no point in doing that. But then another study suggested that, at least in some cases, it, it could be useful and that it was certainly very safe to do so. So NICE, in November 21, uh, issued national guidelines that progesterone could be considered and was recommended for women who'd had one previous miscarriage and were threatened with another, if they were experiencing symptoms suggesting a possible second miscarriage right. in early pregnancy. So the the abortion bodies uh, were concerned that groups like, or people like myself and others who support abortion for reversal might take this opportunity, and we, we would have done, to uh, to uh, apply tonight to say that, okay, well, we're given progesterone for these uh, threatened miscarriages, even though they're, it's a different circumstance, they're induced miscarriages by, induced by the, the drugs that are used. Uh, yeah. And it makes sense because the reason that um, progesterone might be successful in some cases is to do with progesterone levels. So if your body's not, if the woman, mother's body is not producing enough progesterone or it's inadequate, sufficient uh, amount of progesterone, then you, there is a risk of miscarriage. So mm -hmm. what we were doing was you know, counteracting the effect that mifepristone has on the actions of progesterone. So it made you know, biological and scientific sense that, that we would that we do this treatment. And so they were concerned that we would jump on the, the bandwagon of the NICE decision. So they put in applications, uh, not only MSI, but also BPAS and the British Association of Abortion Care Providers, put in applications that to, to ensure that the, the final guidelines would state that this did not include women who had taken mifepristone. Uh, which is fine, they're entitled to that opinion, and you know we will dispute that opinion, but they're entitled to have that opinion. Mm. Uh, but the MSI application went too far. It went to say that they had received a number of reports from women who had suffered a poor experience at the hands of doctors who were providing this abortion reversal treatment, which is not true. We know that there was no reports from women. None of the complaints that were received uh, to the GMC came from any of the patients we had treated. None, none, no complaints came from any of their families. Uh, so the only complaints came from the disgruntled abortion providers and, and those who were you know, extremely in, in favor of, of promoting abortion. So it appears to me like they actually lied nice about and actually made up things and said things well, that they knew were they false. They said they had received, um, or they were aware of um, several poor experiences that women had suffered, which we know is not true. Uh, we know that we no evidence of that. There's no record of well, conversations. Uh, well, we knew when, going back uh, before that, when we were trying to appeal the decision against us, we knew that our appeal depended on 
the witness statements of the women involved. And we knew that all of them, even those who decided not to go ahead with the treatment, and there were some, about a third of the, the mothers who contacted us decided for whatever reason, usually due to pressure from others, but not to go ahead with treatment and they went ahead with, with the abortion. But even we got, we got some witness statements from a number of them, and even they were very uh, supportive of what we had done, the, the, the care that we had offered, the, the kindness, the, the support, um, none, none of them had anything negative to say about us. They're all very positive. And then, the, of course, the mothers whose babies had been born, the mothers whose pregnancies were continuing, even some who's, who tried the treatment but didn't work, because, as I said, it only works slightly more than 50% of the time. Uh, yeah. So we got statements from, from all of these groups, and all of them were very encouraging and very supportive, very positive. And the one that's really struck me, Devon, as well, is um, that Jonathan Lord, Dr. Jonathan Lord has been making this claim this statement in public that a pregnancy has an 82 percent chance of continuing if the second pill is not taken so after you take the one pill he says 82 percent chance of survival now you just explained earlier on that it's actually less than 20 percent chance of survival isn't it how did he get it yeah, so wrong he gets it so wrong because first of all there's no studies have looked at um at the survival rate after the first pill the, the only studies that have actually addressed this question have only gone to 15 days and we know that it's less than 25 percent up to 15 days that's 15 days after they've taken the abortion pill and we know that there's a later loss rate as well because we've had many many patients many women who've contacted us who've gone with progesterone and they've been doing great for 15 days and then on the third or fourth or even fifth week they've miscarried very tragically and now some of them may have been natural miscarriages that would have occurred anyway so first of all we're not comparing like with like when we say there's a 50 to 55 percent survival rate that's to birth as to birth, live, healthy, happy birth. Uh, when they say that there's a, when we say that there's a, um, the survival rate if the woman just takes mifepristone but doesn't take progesterone, um, that's only to 15 days. So there's about a, there's a 20 to 25 percent chance that the that the embryo or fetus will survive to 15 days. We don't know what happens up to birth. What he's doing, he's taking a paper and I have it here in front of me from 1980 from sorry uh, 1993. Oh, so sorry, 2013, so quite quite recent, from France, um, uh, led by uh, an obstetrician, uh, Dr. Bernard, lady uh, obstetrician. Uh, now, she was interested in finding out if, if babies survived uh, exposure to the abortion drugs, but, and not only mifepristone, but mifepristone and misoprostol as well. She wanted to know, was there any increased risk to the babies? Uh, we know there's no increased risk to, to the mother necessarily from the treatment, although... Mm -hmm. heavy bleeding and uh, other uh, complications to occur but they wanted to know if the baby survived was there a risk of some congenital problems that was what they, the study was addressing now in that they asked for volunteers for women who had changed their mind for whatever reason or who had taken both abortion pills but the abortion hadn't succeeded and then they hadn't subsequently gone for termination because most in most cases if the if the two drugs don't work then the, the mother ends up having a surgical abortion that's it doesn't happen very often, but it's, uh, as I said, it's one or two percent of cases, but the, the vast majority of them will have, subsequently have a surgical abortion. So this, this was a self-selected group. So these were women who managed, for whatever reason, to maintain the pregnancy despite having taken mifepristone or mifepristone and misoprostol. And they managed to get 105 in total over a 13-year period in, in France, over a number of different centres, women who voluntarily came forward. So the, so the babies had already survived. So they were taking a self-selected group. They weren't looking at the total numbers of, of babies that had been lost. 
because uh, if you took that to its full conclusion, so he said of, of those then who survived and who entered into the study, 82% uh, managed then to have live births and then there wasn't any increased risk of congenital malformations with, with those babies. But if you, if you looked at the, the full figures for it, if you looked at those where the mothers had taken both abortion pills, then the, it's even higher, something like 96%. Um, so he, by, by the statement he gives that 82% will survive despite exposure to the mifepristone, he's, if you went and read the next line, it said that a 96% will survive if the mother has taken both pills. Uh, it just <laughs> doesn't crazy. make sense. Either he doesn't know how to correctly interpret medical statistics, scientific statistics, or he is deliberately manipulating those figures to try to, to mislead the public and whoever else might read it. And, and this has a, been published on a number of... Sorry. It would be generous in saying he actually didn't understand it. It's an extremely poor understanding, isn't it? I, I would have thought so. I would have thought so. That's not how medical statistics uh, work. Yeah. 82%. Most authorities will accept, and even in the editorial in that same, uh, commenting on that, um, in, in that publication, it was the British Journal of Obstetrics, of Obstetrics Gynecology, even the yeah. editorial commenting on that um, article, uh, makes the point that you know we we know that the survival rate after mifepristone is about twenty percent, um, but yeah. then that's too hard. But the, but that's the studies looking at that have only gone to fifteen days, so we we suspect it's much less than twenty percent. But we can't well, we can't prove that for certain. But either that's way, it said uh, given, given progesterone more than doubles the survival rate. That's the important point that people try to dismiss. Yeah, and he's trying to deny that. Um, and. Um, but then the other shocking thing, Demar, is that he also harassed a patient as well. Tell us about that. Yeah, so it's very well. I won't go into too much detail because I haven't. One, mind you, one that patient did come forward, and uh, she she was one of the people who gave very strong supportive um, statement on, on my behalf, and, and she did mention the harassment that she uh, felt subjected to by, by at the hands of, of Dr. Lord. He tried to persuade her. She was a young woman who didn't, uh, she she didn't go ahead with the progesterone treatment, I say. She went back to Mary Stokes to tell them that she had spoken to another doctor, she had changed her mind, and they somehow persuaded her that progesterone was was not a good thing to do, so that, that she should go ahead with the, the abortion. And she, and she did, she went ahead with the abortion. But then she developed complications. And she, uh, if, as happens in at least you know 7% of cases, uh, it was an incomplete abortion, so she ended up uh, still bleeding, still in a lot of pain, and she developed signs of infection. So she went back to Mary Stokes to tell them that she was having pain and difficulties, and they said, oh, no, it's nothing to do with us, you have to go to your GP. And then she went to her GP who said, oh, no, it's nothing to do with me, you have to go back to Mary Stokes. So eventually, in desperation, she contacted me again, because she had been in contact with me earlier when we had discussed the progesterone situation. And I tried, uh, it's, it sounded from the phone that, uh, from our conversation over the phone that, she was developing serious complications with probable retained products of conception in incomplete abortion and probable infection because uh, she told me that she was having sweats and fevers and uh, so i told her she had to go and be seen in a prop proper medical facility so she went to casualty they actually turned her away initially they gave her pain relief and said to you know, come back if problems persisted but then when she told me i told her no you must go back you need antibiotics i even told her what antibiotics that she would have to get because she was allergic to penicillin um, and then eventually she got properly treated and eventually she ended up having a surgical procedure so th this all came back to the sort of stop you there a minute Dermot. you mentioned seven percent so 
you know, we're posting out these pills to women and about 7% of them have quite serious complications that may require... Yeah, the, well, we know from the uh, the Freedom of Information studies, and the, again, these are the ones that we know about, there may be lots of others that we ha that we don't get to know about. Yeah. Women don't always, and understand, we don't always want it on their medical record that they've taken abortion pills. And many of the women that I've been involved with have, because I, I, I asked them all, do you want me to inform your GP about this? And most of them say, no, please don't. I don't want this on my medical record. So I have to respect that. So of those who, where the information is known, we know that they're from the freedom of information that has been obtained through ambulance trust and NHS trust that um, about one in 17 women who've taken the abortion pills end up uh, attending emergency services with complications. That's, most of them are due to incomplete abortions, uh, including some having serious infections. Uh, a lot of them are due to excessive bleeding and heavy bleeding that might require blood transfusions. Mm -hmm. um, so some of them need to need to be hospitalised for these complications. Some of them turn out to be not quite so serious, but we know that at least one in 17 of women who obtain the abortion pills and go ahead with the abortion will end up attending emergency services um, shortly after they've you know, taken the, the abortion tablets. Uh, so that, that's where that figure comes from, um, yeah. of, the, uh, of the risks. Yeah. So, so, and you... The, um, the letter, I understand, has been signed by one of these patients who's willing to testify and has testified before yeah, about Yeah, so uh, back on, on her story, she, um, mm. so word got through to Mary Stopes about about the complication that she had had. And um, then when the complaints were being made to the GMC about myself and Dr. Riley, he, he contacted her on the, on the very day, actually, that we were informed. He, he First of all, he phoned her. Oh, no, um, yeah, sorry, he phoned her and he tried to, Tell her that um, this was very, that these doctors who were providing this progesterone were under investigation, and this was very serious, and that he needed to get some information from her about about me. And she, uh, by this stage, she knew that I had been very kind to her. I had helped her. I had helped to sort out her problem. Um, and she she didn't know who this guy was, and she uh, she phoned me uh, the same day. Says I've been approached by this doctor. He says he's high up in Mary's Topes, and he he wants to know information about you. She said, but I didn't tell him anything. And then shortly after that, when she put the phone down, he sent her an email because they had her email or contact details. And in it, he said, and we have it in writing, that a number of other patients had complained about these doctors. And we know that that's not true because they weren't able to provide any evidence to the GMC of these other patients who had complained about this poor experience that they had suffered. So that was deliberately trying to give, well, presumably deliberately trying to give false information to a patient in the hope that she would be swayed to provide a false witness against myself, uh, which uh, I think that's pretty serious. Um, and it should, it should be serious. taken. Yeah. Uh, when it turned out to be untrue, because she was, as I said, she was one of one of the strongest supporters on, on our side, on, on my side, and, and wrote very nice uh, reports about, about, wrote a very nice report uh, about myself and how I had uh, treated her and supported her. Even though she went through the abortion. She did, yeah, but she yeah. she regretted that, and yeah. she thought, but you know that's, and yeah. she, she's you know she's forgiven because she something yeah. she has great remorse over, and, and she's a lovely lady. Fantastic. So so, um, so this complaint has been submitted to the GMC, and have you heard anything back from the GMC yet? Yeah, well, we got an we got an acknowledgement to say yes. They have thank you for sending the complaint. They had a few other issues. They want a few other questions that they want that, that weren't clear from the initial submission. So they, they sent that and uh, having 
went over that with some other people. I've, I've sent that back uh, just la last night and this morning. I got a, another acknowledgement from them to say that they had received all of the information and they're going to pass it on to the appropriate persons who look into these matters and they'll be in touch with us uh, as soon as possible. Any idea how long it will take the investigation? How long will it take with you? Uh, I, I expect it, well, uh, <laughs> I'd expect to hear something back within within two weeks. That's their usual working time when they when right. they receive uh, right. an allegation or a complaint. They look at it and you'll receive some sort of. Uh, it may not be a definitive uh, decision or anything, but they'll re you'll receive some sort of information usually within two weeks. Wow! And um, what do you hope will happen? Well, I hope they'll take the issue seriously. I hope that they, they won't just dismiss it and push it under the carpet, uh, which you know, could happen. I hope that they will see that this, these are serious allegations and that they need to be investigated. And I hope ultimately, of course, that it'll lead to um, more... Uh, the the abortion pill reversal service that we're trying to offer and we're trying to encourage other doctors to offer, that it will that it'll boost its credibility. Because at the moment there's still a campaign to discredit it, and I would hope that uh, whatever action the GMC think is fit or necessary, that whatever happens, that it will lead to um, a better service for women, a better service for mothers who requested the service. Uh, obviously, ultimately, I'd like to see abortion being banned, but that's not going to happen on on the basis of, the, of this complaint. But uh, but even if they allowed us to provide this service to women um, and accept that it it has you know. That is a credible service that is safe and um, often effective, not always effective. And we're always, we're totally honest about that. We want to yeah. provide any information. We'll give our, our figures of anyone from the the CQC or GMC or anyone asked to see anything that we've done. I'm very happy to share any of the information, you know, as long as it doesn't break the patient confidentiality. Mm. Sure. Well, yeah, well done uh, for all that you're doing there, Deborah, and especially congratulations on saving multiple lives. Um, through this process and we really hope that this treatment becomes yeah like you said gains much better credibility through this whole process um and that jonathan lord gets disciplined i think for misleading people and providing false information that's a very very serious thing that he's done there um so we really appreciate that we've written an article on our website about it if you want to read more detail i'm sure my friends will post it in the comments there uh but moving on to a slightly different topic tim um mm. the house of lords this week debated abortion buffer zones tell us about that and what happened yeah absolutely I, I, I suppose one of the common threads tim and and dermot is that is the issue of choice you know because the um the pro-abortion movement styles itself as, as as people that are pro-choice but it seems to me from the case that you've been discussing dermot where a woman actually changes her mind and makes the choice a decision to reverse that it's as if Mary Stopes, Bipas, don't want that to happen. They don't want that choice to be allowed. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a significance that in terms of what's what's been happening. So, um, yeah, I think we'll maybe come to signs of hope at the end. But I think we have to stress this is a dark day, really, for freedom of speech, um, freedom of religion in this country and for democracy. And actually, wherever one stands on the, the legality of abortion or not, I think, and there have been lords who contributed to the debate who were pro-abortion but could recognize the serious and sort of deleterious effects of this legislation so this was originally a um, clause that was added to uh, a government bill by uh, Rupert Hook to bring in these buffer zones so we're talking about 150 meter sort of area radius around individual clinics uh, 370 or so in the country in fact my colleague worked out that 
uh, we're talking about in total uh, an area of 26 square kilometers. So this is a serious wow. amount of space that, that pro-life people are no longer sort of allowed to enter and offer help and offer advice, information uh, to women and girls who um, uh, are having abortions. So it's been ever so slightly modified and this amendment was voted on this week and, and has sort of been passed by the Lords too. The two-year prison sentence for doing that has been um, replaced by a level five fine, which as I understand it is technically unlimited. So it's still a serious um, consequence uh, if, yeah. if the police decide to charge you. The thing that has also come out is as I understand it, prayer. So some of the viewers may uh, know about the PSPOs, the Public Spaces Protection Orders, yeah. um, which already two people have obviously fallen foul of that. And I think, you know, Elizabeth Vaughan Spruce, I think she may have been on in the past and Adam Smith Connor. So they were praying silently in their heads just just mm -hmm. take that in for a moment praying silently in their heads and were arrested and charged by the police so you do wonder what kind of society we are heading towards here now so so prayer has been not included and the language that's used is influencing any person's decision um so either they don't think prayer has any power to influence or i don't know but one or two people it seems to be would not be deemed as influencing or interfering but if people came in any numbers to pray that would be seen as more serious and of course i guess if you had any kind of placard any kind of banner or even i guess a t-shirt with a pro-life uh symbol on that would be deemed as interference too so as i say it's not a it's not a good moment for our country it's a it's a dark day and having worked through the transcript the hansard transcript you know although there were one or two people who spoke against it on the whole you know it was more positive for this amendment and was almost even a kind of self-congratulatory air at times uh, there's one comment that this is the house of lords at its best um you know so this is what kind of this is what we want our nation to be known for celebrated for banning or criminalizing indeed offers of help to desperate women and girls some of whom as, as, as dr kinney said will have been coerced at this point to have an abortion and what True. we've done is we've, we've removed the last vestiges of peaceful dissent from uh, the killing of children. And this is somehow seen as our finest hour. Um, Crazy. Another, yeah, it is. And, and another pro-life organization put it as, as we've criminalized compassion. And I think that's a really nice catchphrase. We have criminalized compassion. And, and, and two things to kind of point out from the House of Lords, the rest of the, the general sort of representations, one of which, and this won't come as any surprise having heard from um, Dermot, but the level of misrepresentation for pro-life people, you know, the words that are constantly bandied around are threatening behavior, harassment, intimidation, shouting. Now, we have no one has ever been convicted of that sort of threatening, abusive behavior as a, in a pro-life sense outside an abortion facility. You know, if anything, that kind of behavior is often seen from the from the pro-choice side. In fact, um, so and there is already a criminal offense of harassment. Anyway. Exactly. So why do exactly. we need a new law here anyway? Because if harassment is you. Well, fine, arrest them for harassment. But absolutely, you know, and, and that's no need for new law on that basis. Absolutely. And, and that was the gist of kind of Lord Farmer's concerns of this, I think, which were ultimately thrown out. So so there's pure propaganda going on. There's often the mention of these shadowy, sinister American groups that are somehow bankrolling this whole effort. We're never told who they are really in great detail, but somehow bankrolling people to stand out in the wind and the rain with, with <laughs> offering help and advice. And the other ominous factor is is the level of um the number of lords who kind of mention Mary Stopes, who mentioned B-Pass uh, very sort of warmly, 
as if these organizations are somehow neutral, disinterested, unbiased parties, you know, generously offering their advice, you know, mm. as if mm. they don't have a massive stake in this, really, uh, and, mm. and as we've seen. So, so that in a kind of nutshell, um, Tim, is what's been going on. So, so just, um, but just mm. uh, there were some bishops, were they not, in the House of Lords? How did they Absolutely. get on in terms of speaking out for free speech and, um, and pro-life? Yeah, so obviously there's 26 lords, spiritual 26 uh, churchmen and bishops in the House of Lords. And in fact, in the first time this, um, the original Clause 9 was debated, I believe the Bishop of St. Albans um, expressed some concerns. So, so there was a bishop who expressed concerns about the implications of this for freedom of religion, freedom of speech. But unfortunately, um, certainly from my point of view, in this last round of, of debates where, where the legislation was passed, the Bishop of Manchester, um, David Walker, uh, did speak essentially in favour of the amendment. And I'll just pick out a few things of, of what he said, because it's quite illuminating, really. So he begins by saying this has this clause has nothing to do with the moral merits uh, or his concerns have nothing to do with the moral merits or otherwise of abortion. Um, but he then, in the sort of same breath, goes on to call abortion health care, which, which seems something to me of a fairly comprehensive moral judgment. Um, so the bishop. So the bishop of, referred to abortion as healthcare as that we should be yeah. entitled to. Absolutely, is and, and this is again, you know, this is one of the many euphemisms that they use, whether it's women's rights, reproductive justice. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a complete. This is we're talking about the killing of children. So, so for a bishop to use those terms is is quite extraordinary. He then goes on that women must be able to access lawful medical interventions. Again, another euphemism. What what does it describe? It's describing ending a child's life without facing distressing confrontations um and again if any of your viewers want to again really see the reality of abortion i direct direct you to the website abortionreality.com just to see what abortion really involves but medical intervention you know what kind of medicine is this that we're talking about and then the distressing confrontations i mean we've talked about the language of confrontation is not helpful this it almost pictures you know, conjures up images of the police facing off with rioters you know this is not the sort of thing that's going on at all so i kind of reject that language of confrontation but p- people are being offered an alternative as, as as derman is offering to killing their own child and perhaps being reminded at the very last moment what abortion is what this involves so again women are being offered a genuine choice at this point which Presumably, the pro the pro abortion lobby, pro choice people would welcome. They would celebrate that. But but no, there's they don't want any shred of doubt to impinge at this point. They want women's choices. I would suggest to be as uninformed actually as possible. And if there is distress caused, I again I would say that's a proper moral response. That is someone's conscience kicking in. There's a recognition there of what abortion involves. Uh, of mm. course, mm. it's a moral question whether or not. The bishop recognises that, and and I just think mm. this narrative of healthcare is, I think, one of the most perverse. It's a lie. It's a pernicious lie, which, as a Christian, I would say, as all untruths, originates with the father of lies, who Jesus, interestingly, said, has been murdering people from the beginning. John eight mm-hmm. forty four. So, it's disappointing to say the least that that a Church of England bishop is choosing to propagate that lie rather than than refute it um so i think um tim i found it shocking as well that he said he couldn't support an alternative medicine that would actually you know not stop you know not not have these buffer zones lord, lord farmer's amendment because it removes safe zones without a process to be engaged so he basically said he wants 
what he, what, are called, what they're calling safe zones, these buffers. He wants to have zones where you can't talk about abortion. That's what he wants, you know. Um, and I was like, well, what is a bishop doing saying they want to have zones where you can't present a case, you know, or, or talk or discuss or, or you know, share a Christian opinion on something? I mean, that's extraordinary for a bishop to say, no, Christians shouldn't be allowed to share a Christian opinion on something in these places. I mean, that's extraordinary, isn't it? It, it is. And, and, and you know, the, the amendment was slightly tweaked to presumably satisfy human rights requirements and contain sensible limits. But again, one has to ask, well, where are the human rights of the child in all of this? It's <laughs> completely overlooked. You know, when is it ever OK, reasonable, sensible to yeah. take a child's yeah. life because he or she is deemed in, in, inconvenient? Um, yeah. He does talk a little bit about influence. So influence can not only come from from a pro-life person, but also influence can come in the form of coercion through a partner. So the bishop acknowledges that, which is good. But then, as I say, that final bit of, of courage or impetus a woman or girl might have needed to stand up to her abuser, potentially, and, and reject abortion through the offer of informational help has been has been criminalised. And, and yes, I mean, I think the most damning statement on the Bishop of Manchester's contributions here was that uh, Rachel Clark, who works for BPAS, made very deliberately tweeted afterwards her uh, appreciation support of several of the lords and singled out the bishop of manchester for his clarity and his support so there are whatever the bishop thinks he's up to there's absolutely no doubt how the abortion industry how the abortion lobby interpreted his words his actions which is one of support for the killing of children um so as as you say tim what what is the church of england up to and, and in fact i would suggest that the Bishop of Manchester here is actually even is out of step with the Church uh, of England, which, in its in its th in theory at least in its wording, opposes uh, abortion in principle. Um, so let me. So the Church of England combines principled opposition with a recognition that it can be strictly limited conditions under which abortion may be morally preferable to any available alternative. Now. This is so that's the Church of England. It's not obviously the Catholic position, and I would want that position reformed further in the light of God's word. But, but even as it is, the Church of England is is opposed in principle, principled opposition, and it goes on to say that all abortions are tragedies. All abortions are tragedies, and then every possible support, especially by church members, yeah. needs to be given to those who are pregnant in difficult circumstances yeah. and care. So, yeah. whether or not the Church of England is practicing what it preaches, that's the sort of party line. So unfortunately, the Bishop of Manchester is completely out of step with his own, with his own church on this. Um, and they're in teaching. Think, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So he's not really doing what a bishop mm. should be doing, which is upholding the faith once delivered to the saints, teaching the Bible, uh, safeguarding Christian truth. I mean, my, my colleague who came up with the 26, worked out the 26 kilometers squared um, uh, buffer zone areas, also worked out on an average there'll be seven of these per Church of England diocese in the UK. So I suppose it's an interesting test case. Again, where is the Church of England gonna, gonna, gonna find itself? Is it gonna support church members actually who in entering these zones, in the words of Proverbs 24, 11, are seeking to rescue those who are being taken away to death, hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter, or Ephesians 5, 11, seeking to expose the unfruitful works of darkness mm. rather than having mm. anything to do with them. And in doing these things, find themselves criminalized, arrested, fined. Is the church going to speak out in 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 support of these some of whom may be members mm -hmm. of their own congregations mm -hmm. or are they going to throw them under the bus and ignore them? you know what side of history does does the church want to be on and for me anyway the bishop of manchester doesn't understand the spiritual stakes involved here the, the bible is very clear that 
those sure. involved in killing children rupture their relationship with God. They pollute mm. the land mm. with innocent blood. This is the language of his prophet Ezekiel of Psalm 106, for example. So, so yeah, I, I think he's he's gone way beyond what the Church of England um, yeah. teaches. He's, he's he's speaking on his own authority. I would say. So, so um, Tim, I'm conscious of time as, yeah, sure. as well. But you know, it's um, so we, that was the second reading in the House of Lords, and I understand there's a third reading which is almost more of a formality i think um on on monday coming the 6th of february and then it will go back to the commons and sadly the likelihood is that this amendment comes into law um uh, subsequent to that um we will see i think there may may be chance for alternative amendments still um and then of course if it does come into law i know they think they might have made it compatible with human rights but i don't think that it can be compatible with human rights um, in terms of banning people from saying things in certain places um, so I think there's very likely to be a legal challenge on the basis that this is a breach of human rights um, onto this law as well, uh, which I would hope would succeed. So we shall see on that. But um, but like you say, a very sad day when the mm. when the House of Lords congratulates itself on on approving this, and when a bishop of the Church of England actually supports um, these new zones um, around there. Listen, thank you very much for joining us, both of you, Dermot and you. Tim. Um, we will be praying for that GMC investigation, uh, Dermot, and hope that it it um, it you know, finds truthfully and uh, and establishes what's right and lends further credibility to this uh, post um, first abortion uh, reversal treatment, first abortion pill reversal treatment that you are offering that has saved multiple lives, forty four lives, I think you said. Um, and for Tim in your new role and um, all that you're doing there to counter the um, the forces around abortion and things. And uh, so thank you for watching. Thank you for engaging. Uh, do share and like and uh, follow us on social media and connect with us on our website. And I look forward to speaking with you again next week when we have General Synod, which will be very interesting to observe and watch. And I'm sure we'll be reporting on that next week. Thank you very much. Bye.